Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. This is The Naked Scientist with me, Helen Scales. I'm Chris Smith. And I'm Dave Ansell. I'm going to kick off this week with a story about a new way to detect cancer cells. Cancer is caused by cells in the body mutating and losing their inhibitions and keeping on dividing and dividing. This causes a build-up of cells called a tumour. In the wrong place, this can be fatal, but more normally, the really dangerous part is when this tumour starts losing cells to then take up residence in other parts of the body. This process is called metastasis. It'd be really useful to be able to detect these cells as soon as they get into the blood, but there may only be a few thousand of them in the bloodstream any one time, and the amounts of blood you'd have to test would be really quite large. Now, Ekaterina Galanza and her colleagues have come with an interesting solution to the problem. First, they inject tiny magnetic particles, which are chemically attached to a molecule that docks with a receptor on many types of cancer cells. This means that the cells get covered with lots of these magnetic particles. They then put a large magnet near a blood vessel, which attract these magnetic particles. Therefore, as the blood flows past, you get more and more cancer cells building up right next to them. Um, They then fire laser particles into the blood vessel, which is absorbed by these particles, heating them up. They expand, which creates a sound which they can detect. Oh, wow. So not only can you find the things using sound and magnetism, but you can also quantify them because presumably the more that there are there, the more sound you're going to get. That's right. So you can get some idea of how much there is. They actually did some experiments and they found out with mice and they found out depending on how bad the cancer was inside the mouse, that produced a bigger and bigger signal as they went through. Um, They also got a better idea whether the cells they were detecting were cancer cells or just random other things which they stuck to. I was going to say, because one major problem is non-specific binding. If this thing locks onto a cell that isn't cancerous, you're going to get the impression that there are lots more cells there than yep. they really are. So how do they get around that? Well, there's two things. One, if it's not locking very well, there isn't a very strong magnetic attraction, so they tend to wash away with the blood flow. And also, they've used little gold nanoparticles which absorb a different colour of light and um, attract another docking station on cancer cells. So if you see both the magnetic nanoparticle signature and the gold nanoparticle signature, then you've got a much better idea these are definitely cancer cells. They've managed to detect them in mice so far and they think it may be practical to use them in humans in the future. I did see something very similar when people were doing this for melanoma, the cancer which is derived from melanocytes, the skin cells that make black pigment in the skin very aggressive form of cancer but they were using the fact that you could quantify or quantify how many melanoma cells might be going around in the bloodstream if these cancers are going to spread by firing a laser into the cells and because the laser is soaked up by the melanin the dark pigment but not by red cells or white cells it makes the cell get a bit bigger because it heats up and this makes a little shock wave that you can hear as little clicks and so you can work out how many melanoma cells are going around in the blood yeah, it's basically the same idea but for cells which aren't already a funny color Thank you, Dave. Now, let me introduce you to someone who's 4,000 years old. No, it isn't my geology teacher. Just joking. Uh, This actually is a wonderful paper. It's in Nature this week. And scientists have actually come face to face, at least genetically speaking, with someone who unfortunately no longer has any descendants. This is an individual who was one of the Sakak people who were one of the first inhabitants of what's Greenland today. And researchers have managed to perform a complete genetic sequence of this individual using traces of hair that turned up in an archaeological dig. And this dig dates from between about four and 5,000 years ago. That's the stratigraphy that they've got there. And what they're able to do is to find some hair samples which were mixed up with some bone. And hair is, it turns out, quite a good way of getting 
intact DNA out. And so they extracted DNA from this individual and have sequenced him genomically and then done a trick called defining single nucleotide polymorphisms, SMPs or SNPs for short. Long word, but what this means is they're like genetic signposts or flag flags along the genome and they single out specific genetic hotspots that tell us about the genetic sequence either side of where they are. And because modern-day populations inherit all of the same SNPs, you can ask, well, what SNPs has this person got in common with modern-day populations? And that tells you two things. One is who is this person who they found from 5,000 years ago related to? And also, what did he look like? We know it's a him because they've sequenced his DNA and we know it was a he. But the interesting thing that emerged was, first of all, We know that he was very short in stature, which is consistent with someone living up in the cold, frozen north. He also had very brown skin and dark eyes, very thick, wiry hair, a tendency to baldness, in common with many men, and also had dry earwax. There are two different polymorphisms, types or genes that cause earwax. There's one type of wet earwax and one type of dry earwax, and he was of the persuasion that had the dry earwax. And that is interesting because that tends to associate with people who are from the east. And therein lies an interesting story, because people thought this tribe of people got into Greenland because they spread there from neighbouring areas of Inuits who were in that area already, and also in the Americas. Those people got there about 13,000 years ago. This person bears no genetic resemblance to those populations at all, much more closely related to people from Siberia. And so what this is telling scientists and archaeologists now is that there was a second migration of people into Greenland, what they call the New World Arctic. About 5,000 years ago, these people must have trekked out of Siberia, gone across the Bering Strait, crossed North America and gone into Greenland. And the sad news is he doesn't have any descendants that we know about still alive today. But there we are. It's amazing what the power of genetics can do now to tell us about what people were doing 4,000 years ago and even what they look like. Extraordinary. Looking back into the past with these modern techniques. Well, I'm going to move things on to the animal world and the fact that it's often said that elephants can't jump. But can they run or are they only able to walk? Now, that's a bit of a scientific conundrum that hasn't really had an answer until now with a new study that reveals that they actually do a bit of both. And it turns out that they're extremely efficient for moving them these enormous bodies across the Earth um, at quite remarkable high speeds. Well, this is all thanks to a team of researchers led by Norman Hegland from the Catholic University in Louvain in Belgium. And we now know that when it builds up speed, an elephant's front legs trot while its back legs seem to walk. Now, ridden by their handlers at the Thai Elephant Conservation Centre, 34 rescued Asian elephants ranging between an 800-kilo youngster to a four-tonne adult were filmed as they were walked and charged along an eight-metre platform and on the base of that were fixed plates to measure the forces being exerted with each stride of these huge elephants as they lumbered along. Now, what the team did was they tracked the elephant's shifting centre of mass and assessed how they transfer their energy between strides. And Hegland and his team discovered that at low speeds, elephants walk with extremely great efficiency. For every kilo of body weight, they use 60% less energy than we do and 97% less energy than mice do. So they may be huge, but elephants are extremely efficient (laughs) at getting themselves around the place. 
And the key to that efficiency lies in their stability. Um, they always have two or three legs on the ground at any one time. And they also stride much more rapidly um, than perhaps we would expect. And this really which is produces this fast, stable movement at, at slow speeds. Now, when most animals speed up, there's a point when they stop walking with a smooth pendulum-like motion and they start running. And this really involves bouncing up and down, storing up and releasing energy in springy muscles and tendons. Um, a bit like on a pogo stick. I don't know if you ever had a go on one of those. I used to have one. It was great fun. Kept falling off every time. <laughs> and, uh, the most amount of jumps I managed was about 10, I think. That sounds pretty good to me. Anyway, so that's essentially what you're doing when you're running, is you're bouncing and using that energy, storing it and, and, and releasing it as you're going. Um, and uh, often this involves part of a movement where your body completely leaves the ground. Now... Elephants don't do that. They can't jump. They don't actually ever leave the ground. And at high speeds, it seems what they're doing is that they're actually employing a, co a combination of walking and running. As their weight transfers from side to side, they keep their centre of mass relatively steady. That's what these, uh, this, this study showed, was they kept their centre of mass very steady, um, with the back legs really walking along at this steady rate. But their forelimbs were trotting and, and bouncing a little bit forwards. Um, and it's it's almost like they're trying to shift gear and start running, but because of their immense bulk, these huge elephants don't quite manage it. Thanks, Helen. Now, NASA has just launched a new satellite to study the sun. Now, the sun is a source of over 99.9% of the energy arriving at the surface of the Earth. And it's a very active place with giant solar flares and complex weather. This weather can hurl giant lumps of plasma called coronal mass ejections out into the solar system, knocking out power systems and satellites over 80 million miles away on Earth. Plus, we're just starting to understand the ways the solar weather can affect the weather on Earth. So NASA's launched a new satellite called the Solar Dynamics Observatory. It's designed to view the sun continuously at a higher resolution, at a higher rate than ever before, take a spectrum of the sun more than once every 10 seconds, and measure the magnetic field on the surface of the sun continuously. Is this an airborne, as in in-space observatory? Yep. They've had to launch it into a special orbit because it's going to produce such an immense amount of data. It's producing about 1.5 terabytes of data every day, um, which is about 150 megabits a second, which doesn't sound that impressive on Earth, but getting that data down from space into Earth is very difficult. So actually have it orbiting in a geostationary orbit directly over its base station in America. And they had to alter that orbit a bit so it doesn't get um, behind the Earth too much so it can see the sun all the time. And hopefully it will let us get a much better understanding of the sun over the next few years as the data comes in and we'll be able to understand how the solar weather actually works. How will they be scrutinising what the sun's doing? What sorts of measurements is it making and how? Well, in the sun you get these things called solar flares and coronal mass ejections. Basically the sun is a great big ball of plasma. You get great big magnetic effects which curl this plasma up into tighter and tighter knots and eventually things seem to break and release this huge amount of energy. So looking at these things as they're forming in the optical region, in the um, ultraviolet region, actually measuring the magnetic field using various clever techniques. So more than just a giant telescope, this is actually doing a whole range of different measurements it's, a whole range of different things for a long period of time. Yeah, it's got three or four different telescopes on it. They want to keep looking at it so you get a good set of data over a whole um, period of the sun's activity over 11 years. Thank you very much, Dave. Helen? Well, I'm going to take things right back down to earth again and ask you if you've ever tried running along a beach. And if you have, you'll know that on soft, dry sand, it's really difficult to do and you keep on stumbling and falling over with the grains of sand shifting. Well, if it's a beach at South End, it's largely mud. 
Beaches. <laughs> OK, sandy beaches, that's what I'm talking about. And sea turtles know only too well the perils of sandy beaches because after they hatch, the turtles have to emerge from their nests and run the gamut of the beach down to the waves. And even though they spend just a few brief moments on land, baby turtles can move with remarkable speed across sand, even if it's loose and slippery. The question is... How do they do it? Well, it turns out that newborn turtles use their flippers to produce small blocks of compact sand, which act like a solid, allowing the turtles to propel themselves rapidly across the beach surface. Now, these findings are published in the journal Biology Letters by Daniel Goldman and colleagues from the Georgia Institute of Technology in the US. Now, last year, Goldman and his team built a creature called Sandbot, and that was a simple robotic creature that helped them understand how real animals cope with walking across soft sand. Now they've turned their attention to turtles and the team on a rather lovely assignment went down to the beach at Jekyll Island in Georgia and they were armed with a mobile laboratory and they worked with the Georgia Sea Turtle Centre and together they took high-speed film of hatchling leatherback turtles crawling along a trackway and they covered that in loosely packed sand. What they found was the high-speed film revealed that the flippers pushed into the sand at precisely the right angle and force to build up these little blocks of compacted sand and they could then push against those, generating a thrust to move themselves forward. And what this really is just showing us is that animals have evolved really elegant biomechanical solutions for these physical problems that the natural world throws at them. And to build a robot that can do the same thing requires really intricate laboratory experiments. So meanwhile, the turtles have come up with their answer without really even having to think about it to get their way across the beach from nest to sea and back again. And it's a mode of transport that scientists are just beginning to understand. And presumably also want to borrow, because if we can work out how they do it, which they now have, and it's very efficient and effective, we could use it too, presumably. I see. I should think so. If we want to send probes to Mars, clambering across all sorts of terrain, it would, would be useful too. But I think go turtles, fantastic, that they've got such clever ways of surviving in all different environments. Thank you, Helen. Now, uh, a few weeks on from what happened in Haiti, the earthquake, of course, the whole situation there is still making news because of the sheer scale of the devastation. We'll hear more in a little while about how technology, and specifically the internet, can actually help to coordinate the aid effort. But what about the actual earthquake itself? What are scientists now beginning to learn from observing the land as it now is following the quake? Well, James Jackson's Professor of Active Tectonics at Cambridge University is with us. Hello, James. Hello. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. Tell us a little bit, if you can, about how scientists now beginning to follow up what's happened in Haiti to try to understand more about what caused it in the first place and what's likely to come in the future. We have a range of tricks now we can use to really do a forensic job on what happened in these earthquakes, wherever they are. Some space-based techniques, one of which is called radar interferometry, and all we use here is satellites which, which pass over the Earth and send a radar beam down to the surface of the Earth and it reflects back to the satellite. This is the way people are used to hearing about radar to monitor aeroplanes or to ship at sea to look at other ships at sea. By just sending a beam out and, and, and measuring how long it takes to come back tells you how far away that object is. But what these satellites do is pass over the Earth. They can take an image of the ground before the earthquake, take an image of the ground after the earthquake, compare the two and see how the ground has moved between those two images. And we can do this now um, fairly regularly over most of the land surface of the Earth and we can measure how much the ground has moved to an accuracy of a few centimetres. That doesn't sound, that maybe sounds a lot or a little to you, I don't know, a few centimetres, but the actual signal in the earthquake, the amount 
the ground moves in an earthquake like the Haiti one is between two and five metres. So the signal-to-noise ratio is fantastic. It's very easy to see this. There are various problems with it, of course. The, the satellite itself is in a polar orbit, which means it, it orbits from north to south, and the Earth rotates underneath it. So you can imagine the satellite making a track across the Earth, and every time it goes round, the Earth has spun round a little bit more, so it makes a track over a different place. So the satellite only repeats over the same track about every 30, 40 days, something of that Which sort. Which is why we've seen this little delay That's right. between so the, the earthquake happening and now we're getting the data. The data will come through. But not all satellites are the same. There's another effect we have to watch out for, which is the satellites were not designed to do this. So the satellites which are up there were mostly designed to monitor, in fact, the sea surface, because what you can monitor very easily and accurately is the height of the sea surface anywhere, and that is how you monitor things like the El Nino, the big weather effects, which are the real reason for putting those things up. So they were designed to look at the oceans, and you have a particular wavelength for doing that, which is optimal, which is about five centimetres for the sea surface. That's actually not very good for land, because it scatters off things which are about five centimetres in size, like leaves on trees. And places like Hispaniola, and most of the Caribbean is covered in jungle, and that's not very good. So there is another satellite (laughs) which has a longer wavelength, about 15 centimetres, and this is good. It sees through trees, but it doesn't repeat quite as often as, as the other ones. And so we've had to wait quite a long time to get this. But we now have some images. Of I was going to say, you've now got Western the data. Hispaniola. So what, what is this showing and what can we learn from it? What should we now, or, or, or were our initial suspicions about what happened actually correct on the basis of what these yes, satellites were Yes, because there are leaving? other ways we can get it. We also have a really pretty skill now at using seismology, which is the sound that comes out of the earthquake to say what's happened. And we can use GPS, which is the precise movement of points on the ground, which is also monitored. Um, it's the same, t- same technology used for sat-navs in cars, but actually rather more precise. So these things combined together are very much more powerful than, than each one on its own. What are they revealing? They're revealing precisely what we will find out in Haiti, what we know now is the length of the fault which moved, how much it moved, where it moved most, what's the distribution of slip along that fault and how has the ground moved as a response to that earthquake. And why that matters, why it, you might think why, who cares after the earthquake's happened, why should you do that? What actually hap- what you see is the ground moves, it moves up and down and sideways a few metres in this earthquake. But if it does it hundreds of times in hundreds of earthquakes, it produces the landscape. And so what you learn about is the relation between the landscape and the way these faults move. And then you can recognise signals in the landscape which tell you about these faults before they move. So you can actually go to a place and say, yes, I know why the land looks like that, because I've seen it before somewhere else. And that is what saves lives. It's that step, which is now fairly routine in places like California and Japan, which allows the engineers to know what they're up against and design things that don't fall down. One snag, of course, is that everywhere on Earth is different, or you could argue everywhere is unique to a certain extent, so what goes for Haiti may not necessarily go elsewhere. So there will be a degree of geographic specificity, won't there, and therefore you need to have a long-term data set, I suppose, in order to get close to understanding how that bit of the, the Earth's surface performs and behaves? It's, the circumstances are different. So Haiti is covered in jungle, Iran's covered in desert, which is much easier to see things. So uh, it's the, the way the faults move are not very difficult because they're obeying pretty basic laws of physics which we understand at that level. We understand what happens if you move a fault that size, uh, the way it moved. It may be hard to see the signals in the landscape because they're not preserved in places that rain very heavily or covered in ice or snow or so on. It's harder to see than in a desert. So that's why we do these things all the time because you're you're right, you build up a data bank of experience essentially uh, where you see bits of the 
the story in some places, but you recognise the bits you can't see because actually you've seen them somewhere else. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. Reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.